morning again. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you as we, uh, as we draw a close almost to the end of our, this section of Genesis and uh, learning from Abraham's life. Um, I pray that you would continue to teach us this morning um, through this uh, section of your word uh, that is extremely important. So God, I pray that you would uh, um, open our, our eyes to see and our minds to understand and our ears to hear what you have to show us from your holy word this morning. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Am I going to be okay here? Oh, it's staticky. Let's just go ahead and get this out of the way, guys. Yeah, we do here. All right. Well, let me just start by asking, when, when, you, when you think of control, like having control, what comes to your mind? Is it having all of your ducks in a row? Is it making sure that you know everything about everyone in your life and what they are doing and where they are at at all times? Uh, do you struggle with FOMO? That's a form of control, fear of missing out. Do you feel out of control when things seem unorganized or don't go according to your specific plan? So I was supposed to be married by this time in my life, and that's not happening. I was supposed to have this many kids by now. I was supposed to be at this income level or be at this position in my career by now, and that's not happening. Things are out of control. I didn't factor in my parents getting a divorce or my spouse dying or my kids walking away from the faith. All of these things are out of my control. And so what we realized through all of those scenarios, and I'm sure you have more that you could think of, uh, what we realize is that in these moments is, is, is that when we aren't in control as much as we like to believe we are. So this is something our father Abraham has learned over the entirety of his life with God. We've seen it displayed for us in the pages of Genesis. Abraham, on more than one occasion, sees his situation, considers it out of control, and then takes matters into his own hands. How often we do this as well. We, we see a situation before us, we consider it out of control, then we take matters into our own hands by doing what we deem best for our lives at that particular moment. But we also learn over time, Abraham has also learned through the love, patience, and grace of his heavenly Father to trust him in all things, even if they do look out of control. And it's here in our text this morning that, that we learn what Abraham has learned. That God's providential hand 
is always guiding us. He's always with us. And what we'll hopefully learn is to see his providential hand guiding us uh, all the way through our lives, just as he did with Abraham. And we'll hope, hopefully we'll see this in three ways today. Through, through three ways. Through the commission that Abraham gives to his servant. That's one. Through the mission of the servant. That's two. And then three, through the mission accomplished. So the commission, the mission, and the mission accomplished. So first, the commission in verses 1 through 9. Now, Abraham is, is not the main character of our narrative today. Actually, we'll see uh, Abraham fall into the background of our passage right after these verses. And it's sort of a foreshadowing both of, of his impending death in chapter 25, that's coming up, but also the passing of the proverbial baton to his son Isaac to carry on the promise. So Abraham is not the focus of the narrative today. Rather, the providential work of God in the circumstances of a faithful servant is what the central focus is. And it's in these first nine verses this is established. So verse 1 tells us a lot about the future. Look there with me. Moses writes, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So a summary statement, pointing forward and pointing back. Okay, so two things we learn about Abraham's current state in verse 1. One, he is very old. And just an observation, I found it sort of comical that Moses, who is the author of Genesis, uh, calls Abraham very old, but he doesn't say that with Sarah. Did you guys notice that? I just thought that was kind of funny. Maybe that's just me. Um, But either way, What we see here is Moses letting us know that Abraham doesn't have long in this life. He is well advanced in years, which means he is very close to death. The second thing we learn again about Abraham is that he has been blessed by God in all things. Moses here and in several places in today's chapter alludes back to the beginning of Abraham's walk with God in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, pointing back to the promise. And he does this to tell his readers that God has been faithful to keep his promises to Abraham throughout his entire life. And his ups and in his downs, he is faithful to him. So both of these details offer some clarity to the argument of the chapter. Because Abraham is old... And because he is blessed by God, he must now ensure that this promise, that this blessing, carries on into the next generation. And into the next generation after that. And into the next generation after that. And so on and so forth. This was the line of promise. And in order for this line to continue, there needed to be children. And to make children, just in case you were wondering... A man needed a wife. Now, before we move on, we do need to recognize something here that I often get asked, and that's the question concerning God's sovereignty, or we could also talk about God's providence and our responsibility in the midst of that. Because both are present in chapter 24. So we have God's providential hand working all things according to his good purposes, moving his promises forward. We can see that. It's obvious. 
But you also have Abraham making what seems like his own plans. Yet what we see here is not God having one plan and Abraham having another and seeing which one wins out. What we see here is Abraham acting in accordance with God's plans, not against them. So Abraham knows how biology works. He knows where babies come from, and so does God. Children don't just drop from the sky, which means in order to see the covenant fulfilled, Abraham has, has work to do. In order to push the promise of God forward, Abraham needs to find a bride for his promised son, Isaac. That is his responsibility. And this is exactly the mission that he pursues. Look at verses 2 through 4. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, "Put put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the, uh, of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But I will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So why I want you to see this is, is to discount the thoughts that you may have that say things like this. And they're wrong thoughts, just to remind you of that. Well, if if God has already predestined it, why do anything? Why do I have to work? If God has already predestined it for happen, why do I have to do anything? Why pray? I've heard people ask this question to me. Why pray if God is already going to answer the prayer in the way that he wants? Well, a few logical answers to these questions. The first answer is, You don't know any outcome to God's plan, and you may be the one God is using to fulfill a particular aspect of that part of God's plan. So if you choose to remain immobile because God has already predestined this, you will miss out on the blessing of seeing God work in this way. And then to add to that, on top of that, you are also walking in disobedience to him, to God, as you remain immobile. So let me just give you an example. Planting this church, planting Christ the King Church. This particular local church would not exist if a handful of people, seven people, and I think we, we counted it up today when we were driving here, me and Malachi, I think there was eight kids at that particular time. Seven adults, eight kids at that particular time. If a handful of of these people did not step out in faith, so uh, leave the homeland, leave our comfort, leave our security, and go to where we sense God was leading to us. Which means, the way in which God has worked in your life through this particular church would not have happened. You wouldn't have this community. You wouldn't have the experiences that you've had here. None of it. If a handful of people didn't take up the call, step out in faith, and do the hard work of planting a church from nothing. Would God, still, would God have still worked in your life? Maybe. 
in the same way that he has been here at Christ the King? I don't know. I don't know. It could have looked a lot differently, maybe, maybe been a lot harder or taken you a lot longer to get to that point where you are now. I'm, I'm not, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. But I know we've seen this in Abraham's life. We've seen it several times that instead of walking in obedience, he chooses to do his own thing, chooses to go his own way, to walk in the opposite direction of God's promises rather than towards them which sets him back drastically several times, humiliates him, and even puts the promises of God at risk more than once. So simply put, God calls you to walk in obedience according to his commands, not your own and not the world's. Second answer to those two questions you don't know how God is going to answer the prayer in the way that you are praying. So I think sometimes we believe if I pray for this thing, that God is, that God is obligated to give it to me. Or that God is obligated to answer the prayer in the way that I'm praying. He, he, he is not obligated to do that. Now, he will answer your prayers. And I do believe that God answers every single prayer but it may be a no when you wanted a yes. Or it may be a wait to, I want this to happen right now. He does answer this. So God is going to answer your prayer according to his good and perfect will, yes, but that's not always going to line up with the words that you pray. It may very well be the answer you were not expecting or the, or the answer that you really didn't want, but you can be sure that it's the answer that you need at that particular moment. So when that happens, we must stop and ask the question to kind of meditate on what's going on. What is God doing here, and how does he call me to respond? Especially if you were expecting a yes and you got a no. Or a wait instead of, Go ahead. How does he call me to respond? John Piper writes in his magnum opus work on providence. The book's just called Providence, and it's 700 plus pages long. But he says this in, in the book. He says, what sustains us is not our ability, ability to explain God's providence, but the unshakable fact of God's providence. And that fact will sustain us to the to the degree that we believe that nothing, absolutely nothing, can happen to us but by God's fatherly hand. This is why stories of God's providence abound in Scripture, but explanations of the mystery of how it works do not. Our faith needs the certainty of the fact, not the fathoming of the mystery. So what Abraham is doing here is interpreting God's providence through God's promises. And that's how he's able to make the decision that he makes, to send his servant out, to go and search for a wife for his son Isaac. So we now move from Abraham's commission to his servant's actual mission in verses 10 through 33. Now, we don't know uh, much about Abraham's servant, 
Uh, we're not given his name here, but some believe this to be uh, Eliezer of Damascus, who is mentioned in Genesis 15:2. This is the same servant that Abraham was like, I don't have a son, and everything that I have is going to be left to this guy, Eliezer. So I think that's who it is. Some people don't. Some people think he's dead by this point in time, but Abraham's old. Eliezer might as well be there with him. But regardless, the most important thing about this man is that he is a faithful servant of Abraham. He is a faithful servant of his master. But more importantly than that, Eliezer is a faithful follower of God Almighty. We see this faith through the mission that was given him. He's not given a ton of clarity beyond Abraham telling him, look, just don't find a woman here. Go and find her amongst my people and bring her back. That's all he's given. He doesn't say how she's supposed to look or how she's supposed to speak or, or, or how old she's supposed to be or whatever. He's just told, just go and find a woman amongst my people. So the first thing this man does is commit his mission to God. And he does that in prayer. Look at verse 12 as he begins his prayer. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. So a very short and simple prayer, yet very, very profound. Because it shows that this servant of Abraham has great faith like his master. The God of Abraham is the God of his servant as well. And this is the same God that will lead Abraham's servant. So obviously, he has seen God's work amongst Abraham and Sarah, and, and he's trusted his life to him. And so he too interprets God's providential work through God's promises to his master. Because the answer to this prayer guarantees that the promise will proceed through Isaac's line. So in the next few verses, he prays very specifically about this woman he hopes to find. Look there at 13 and 14. He prays, Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will also water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So essentially what we have Eliezer doing here is he's praying for clarity. Not necessarily praying for a sign. This isn't the same thing as, as, um, as, as, as what we see in the scripture when laying down a fleece or something like that. This is more of him praying for clarity. Remember, Abraham didn't give him a lot of clarity. So he's praying to God for it. So he says, I'm going to say this. Please let down your jar that I may drink. And she will say this, drink and I will also water your camels. Which is actually a pretty massive prayer to pray. In, it, it, just culturally speaking, if someone were to ask a woman for water at, at this watering hole, she was obligated to give it to him. She was not obligated to water his camels. So a very specific prayer that receives a very specific answer. Look at verses 15 through 19. Before he had finished speaking, before he had finished praying, we could say, Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, 
came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. Checkbox one. She, had, she, she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Checkbox two. Boom. Answered prayer. Now what I want us to see in that is a pattern of prayer for us. And I think there's four, probably five things here that we, can, that we can even model our own prayer life against. So if you want to take notes here, this is a great opportunity for you to do it. Very practical right now, okay? The first thing, go to God in prayer for whatever it is, no matter how small it is or how big it is. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul says, pray without ceasing. Always pray. So we have to understand that as Christians, you can and should be having communion with God at all times. It's not just on Sunday. It's not just when your missional community meets. It is always. Michael Reeves says in his little book, Enjoy Your Prayer Life, he says, when you know that each day is already all God's and that we have fellowship with him all the time, then prayer suffuses the whole day more naturally. Then you find yourself intuitively praying through the day more and without feeling the need to be hyper-spiritual and concentrated the whole time. It's just a natural rhythm of your everyday, moment-by-moment life. It's communion with God. So how often are you bathing your day in prayer? What does that look like for you? How often are you giving every decision that must be made to God in prayer? Do you ask for clarity? Do you ask for wisdom? Do you ask for specific answers even? If you don't already, I'd encourage you to do so starting today. I, have a, I, 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 use, a, I use prayer journals to pray just to keep my mind focused because I'm very distracted. Um, but I also go back through and I will mark with just a... Um, a tab that I have in my Bible here uh, in these prayer journals of answered prayers. And I have journals upon journals upon journals that are chocked full of God's answer to specific prayers. Impossible things that I could do on my own. And God has answered those. So I'd encourage you to do that. And the reason why is because God, who is your heavenly Father, cares about everything that you're involved in that you find important, that you care about. And he wants you to come to him in prayer about all of those things. Second, take action. Notice how our friend Eliezer doesn't sit around waiting for this woman to come to him. He moves. First and foremost, he goes to the place where the women are going to be, which is at this watering hole. So he goes there first, but then in verse 17... It says, Then the servant ran to meet her when he saw Rebekah and said to her, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. Because Eliezer knows, as Pastor James Montgomery Boyce points out, that prayer 
is given not to make work unnecessary, but to make it effective. Prayer is given not to make work unnecessary, but to make it effective. So let me illustrate what I mean with this. So, I don't mention this a whole lot, because I don't want you to be afraid of me. But I am a blue belt in jiu-jitsu, and one of my life goals, one of my life goals, is to earn my black belt. So in jiu-jitsu, it takes about, it can take up to 20 years to earn your black belt. So 10, 10 to 20 years. So, a long time. So, so maybe my prayer would be simply something like this. God, help me to earn my black belt. Because, you know, God's my father. He cares about that. He cares about those things that I'm involved in. So, God, help me to earn my black belt. But then in response to this prayer, I did nothing. I didn't put in the work. I didn't train. I didn't bleed. I didn't sweat. I didn't learn anything. Should I expect God to answer my prayer for a black belt? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Why should I expect God to answer a prayer that I made no uh, faithful effort toward? I shouldn't. I guess I could buy it online if I wanted to, but I miss out on lots of things there and teachable moments and all sorts of things. There's another whole sermon illustration there. But what we have to understand is that prayer is not a substitute for action. So maybe, maybe you're struggling financially right now. Maybe, maybe you've lost your job and you're praying, God, I, I provide for my needs. Well, if you don't get a job, it's going to be really hard to have it. I mean, can God give you money? And, and Yes, that's happened to our family. Money in the cash in the mailbox, answer to prayer. That does happen. But that's not all the time. Prayer is not a substitute for action. We don't pray and then sit around and do nothing. We must work to make it effective. And that's what we see LEAs are doing here. Third, is to look intently for the answer. Look at verses 20 through 21. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trowel and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. And then the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So even, even after this miraculous and immediate answer to prayer, Eliezer still stays there and just watches Rebecca just to make sure that this is the one, even though it's really obvious. He's seen his answer swiftly and specifically, and he still looks intently to see if this is God's answer, to which he finds out it is. Which leads to the fourth aspect of the pattern of prayer, which is how we respond to answered prayer. So after this woman waters his camels and Eliezer finds out that this woman is from Abraham's family, Moses makes sure the author uh, highlights that aspect. This is Abraham's, from Abraham's brother. I mean, it doesn't get any closer, to, closer than that. This is how he responds. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. 
and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. So in every way, this man gives God all, 100%, the glory. Even though he played a part, remember? Even though he didn't substitute prayer, uh, substitute action for prayer, or substitute prayer for action, I should say, sorry. He still gives God all the glory because it is God who has answered the prayer. Is this how you respond to God after your prayers have been answered? I told you I put a tab on mine and, and I give God, a, you know, just praise very quickly. Praise, you know, praise God for answering this prayer in this specific way. But do you praise him and worship him after he has answered prayer? I, mean, I know we take a lot of prayer requests. We like to take prayer requests, you know. But do we go back and go, how did God answer that prayer? And then do we respond with rejoicing and with worship when we hear the answer? Do you praise him and worship him even when it's not the answer you want? It's a little bit harder. But if you don't already do this, I would encourage you to begin inserting that into your prayer life, making a record of it. Because praising God frames your prayers around his good providential plan and not your selfish ambitions. And this is what our friend shows us throughout this chapter. Prayers are answered, God is praised, and now finally, the mission is accomplished in 34 through 67. So in every way, we see that this is a, this is a mission that is final. First, we see it in, in the excitement of our servant. Uh, which uh, in, in verses 34 through 49, which I had Tyler skip over because he's retelling the entire story again. This man is so excited of how God has specifically answered his prayer that he, he, uh, he reiterates every part of the story back to this family, which, by the way, is from Abraham's land, which was a pagan land and family. These people don't know the God of Abraham. And Eleazar repeats the story. So that could be the fifth aspect of a pattern of a prayer is making sure you're retelling the story. If God has answered your prayer, you should be telling others, this is how my God has done this. And this is what Eleazar does. Which is simply him declaring to this family the faithfulness of God Almighty to him and to his master Abraham. The second reason we know this mission is accomplished is the response of the bride's family. Remember, a pagan family. Look at verses 50 through 51. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. We can't speak to you one way or the other. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So the clarity of God's providential work in providing a bride for Isaac is so clear 
that the only thing this pagan family can do is agree to the betrothal. The third reason we know that the mission is accomplished is the response of the servant once again. I love this servant, Eliezer. Such a picture of of someone just walking closely with the Lord. And once again, what we find him doing, first and foremost, before anything else happens, is responding in worship. And by the way, he's just modeling what his master Abraham has always done. Remember, when anything happened that was uh, clearly something that God was doing in Abraham's life, what did he do? He would build an altar and worship. So Eliezer is just carrying on the tradition here. Verse 52. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And then he sets out the customs of a dowry down payment in verse 53, which simply just confirms the agreement. And then the fourth reason, and probably the, the most important reason we know the mission is accomplished, is Rebecca's response. In verses 54 through 58, there is an interchange between the two parties. So Eliezer, the servant, he wants to set out right away on his journey. He wants to get back to to share this good news with his master Abraham and with his son Isaac, while Rebekah's family still wants a bit more time with her to maybe tie up some loose ends, to, 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 to make sure the, the, the finances are going to go in the, in the right bank accounts and such. And so they say, hey, let her just stay with us 10 more days. Just 10 more days so that we can tie up these loose ends. And again, Eliezer persists, and the answer he receives is in verse 57. They said, so this is her family, let us call the young woman and ask her what she wants to do. Now, you might think that's just a simple, a simple request, but in this, in, this, uh, in this part of the world, culturally speaking, the woman is typically never consulted in a marriage arrangement. She may have her opinions. She may not want to be married to this particular man, but usually, typically never consulted. They just did it. Here's the deal. Here's Rebecca. Take her. And that's it. But Rebecca's let in on the decision here. And in, in her answer in verse 58, which are just three simple words, but three really significant and important words, I will go, reminds us of a couple of, 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 a couple of people. One, looking back, it reminds us of the faith of Abraham back in chapter 12. The exact same thing is happening to Rebecca that happened to Abraham. She is leaving the same homeland that Abraham left, going to the same place that Abraham went, and, to, and carrying on a promise that is yet to be fully fulfilled. She is stepping out in faith to follow this God of Abraham. Now looking forward, her obedience also reminds us of another faithful woman named Mary in the New Testament whose response to the angel's message of you will conceive the son of the most high God is behold I am the servant of the Lord let it be to me according to your word. Stepping out in faith. The mission is accomplished. So what are we supposed to see here? Well, just as the story today began looking back at the beginning of Abraham's story, all the way back in chapter 12, that's where Moses is wanting us to to look to, it ends by looking forward 
to our story. And all of that comes together through the words of Rebecca's family members in verse 60. They said to Rebecca before she sets out, and they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. So we must see in these words, not only God's promise to Abraham being repeated, which they are in, from Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 through 18, but also that they are pointing to, forward to the future promise of the Messiah, the snake crusher. And the way we see this is through a, through a type of the story that we hear in Genesis 24. Maybe you caught it already. Which is just another story of a father sending a servant to search for a bride for his son. So in biblical theology, there is an idea known as typology, T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y, which simply, just to explain it simply, highlights those portions of Scripture that are pointing beyond themselves to the new covenant reality in Christ. And they do it in a very specific way. So this text is a picture of, of how we become a part of the bride of Christ. So Rebecca, we could say, is a type of the church who is being sought out by the servant who we would know as the Holy Spirit of God, who has been sent by God the Father to seek out a bride for his son, Jesus. As one commentator says, Rebecca was thought of before she knew it, and was chosen when she did not know of the existence of her bridegroom yet. So it is with us. For we are chosen in Christ, as Ephesians 1.4 tells us, before the foundation of the world. Before we knew the bridegroom. Before we knew that the king even existed. We had been chosen before the foundation of the world. That's incredible. And so what that means is that this work continues today. Jesus has not come back. The Spirit is still wooing His bride to the bridegroom. And so as the Spirit continues to seek out a bride for the Son, even now, so maybe the question is being asked of you today, right now in this moment, will you go with Him? Will you go with him? And I pray that your response will be your response will be as Rebecca responded, so that you too can be presented before the bridegroom, holy and blameless and without blemish. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for um, this wonderful truth that reminds us of what you have done even before we were aware of it. That your word tells us clearly that you have chosen us before the foundation of the world. And that you are, you are continuing to, to, to woo this bride uh, to Jesus every single day. And so, God, I pray that we would be attentive to what your word has to say to us every single day. I pray that we would be a people who seek you in prayer, 
that we would be a people who, who, um, who not only pray, but also do the work that you've called us to do. So God, I pray that you would do that in this church. God, I pray that you would uh, make us a church that is uh, constantly seeking, uh, seeking ways in which to bring you glory and honor. And we do all of that through the Spirit's work in our life and in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.